0: Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting episode of the Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors Podcast. My name is Sean Martin, and I am a Chemicals Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. With me today for what I'm sure will be a fascinating discussion is Gene Berdachevsky, co-founder and CEO of SELA Nanotechnologies. SELA is a material science and solutions company working to scale energy storage breakthroughs that will fuel an electrified future. The company has worked over the past decade to bring a revolutionary lithium ion chemistry to market, specifically a silicon based anode to replace graphite and lithium ion batteries. The company intends to scale this technology over the next decade to power billions of phones and millions of EVs. Gene, welcome to the podcast and super excited you could join us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion.
0: So Gene, let's, let's start off, off a little bit uh, the background of yourself a little bit about your history and how Scylla came to be, and then subsequently maybe just provide the audience a high-level overview of Scylla's journey since 2011 and where it stands today.
1: Sure, yeah, we'll we'll try to make it snappy here uh, for your listeners. So, uh, you know, I've been working on electric vehicles in some way, shape, or form for about 20 years now. Um, Started uh, building solar cars in my undergrad. And then dropped out of my undergrad to join Tesla as the seventh employee back in 2004. So that that got things started off right. Um, I spent four years there uh, working on the battery system for the Roadster. That was kind of my baby. And after we shipped that, I decided I wanted to look into the science of, of batteries uh, rather than the systems. And so I went back to school and spent a couple of years studying material science and uh, looking at, at the opportunities for how we could push the limits of energy storage uh, and energy more broadly further and further, and decided I wanted to build a company in the storage space. Spent about a year after that, looking at, at lots of different technologies around the world, probably vetted 50 different technologies. And uh, eventually in 2011, met Professor Glebushin at Georgia Tech. Uh, who had some really novel material science tech that he'd been developing. And uh, and we partnered up to found CELA in 2011 and have been building it ever since to really bring this revolutionary new chemistry to the market and push EVs to the next level and push everything we have to the next
0: level. Fantastic, fantastic. Is there anything obviously kind of started up at like Georgia Tech? And is there anything really since 2011 that you would point to as maybe key points in the history prior to sitting here today?
1: Yeah, look I, I mean I think every year is kind of a make or break for a startup in many ways. So we we spent maybe the first um 3-4 years of the business really trying to crack the code on the science of silicon anodes. It's something people had worked on for a really long time. That's kind of the core technology we work on as as you mentioned. And you know, no one had any real progress with it. You could you could add a, a little tiny bit of silicon to a lithium ion battery, improve performance just a little bit. But if you added more, your cycle life would become terrible and the battery would basically become unusable. And so it took us four or five years to really crack the scientific code um, with a product that solved those all of the issues and allowed you to have a much higher energy density with uh, silicon replacing the graphite anode, meaning you could store a lot more energy in a given volume or for a given weight. And then we spent really the last kind of half decade scaling up that technology and continuing to improve it, continuing to improve it. With probably the biggest inflection point in the entire business being kind of late last year when we launched commercially in the Whoop Fitness Tracker, the Whoop 4.0. So it's a fitness device powered with a battery using our chemistry. And it is really the first time in the, wor- in the world where the graphite, with a technology that can replace the graphite anode. So it's a really big deal. It's, it's really kind of, think of it as like the first new chemistry. It's probably the most significant chemistry innovation since the introduction of the lithium-ion battery.
0: Wow, awesome. And uh, I know I know our folks listening can't see us on this call right now, but I can see you're wearing a whoop on your wrist uh, i've been I've been fascinated with that company for a while, and I personally don't have one, but I think it's probably one of the coolest wearables out there, for sure. so So that's exciting stuff. So maybe just take a step back and, and again, understanding that we probably have uh, different levels of people listening to this podcast. but so Phla plays in, in the anode chemistry. Um, if we take a step back, how does a battery actually work? It, we have the anode, we have the cathode, we have the expert uh, with us today. So, so maybe just take us through the basics a little bit.
1: Yeah. So so if we if we kind of rewind, so there's really four components in a lithium-ion battery that matter. The two that matter the most and take up about eighty ninety percent of the volume and weight inside of a battery are the anode and the cathode, as you mentioned. And what they do is the anode stores lithium when the battery is charged, and the cathode stores lithium when the battery is discharged. And what happens when you use the battery is the lithium moves from the anode to the cathode, and what happens when you recharge the battery is the lithium moves from the cathode back to the anode. And so this, this happens You know, every day you use your, your phone, all these lithium ions are moving back and forth. And those, those anodes and cathodes, those are physically just black powders that are sort of passed in place inside of a battery. And the more lithium that anode or the cathode material can store in a given volume or weight, the more efficient the battery becomes, the more higher performing it becomes. And so for about 30 years, every single lithium ion battery in the world has used graphite for the anode. And then it's used different kind of chemistries on the cathode. You've heard about high nickel batteries. You've heard about iron phosphate batteries. Those are different cathode chemistries. You can interchange cathode chemistries without Or you can interchange anode chemistries. Different anode chemistries are compatible with different cathode chemistry. So you sort of pick which one you want, depending on what kind of battery you're trying to build. I mentioned there's four components. There's two others that matter. One is the separator that keeps the anode and the cathode from short-circuiting. It's a little piece of plastic film. It's actually made out of the same material that the grocery bags are made of, the plastic grocery bags. Think of it like it's it's that kind of material with about 50% holes in it to let the lithium move back and forth. And then the, the last component is the liquid electrolyte. And that sort of everything sits in this liquid bath and that liquid allows the lithium to float around inside of it. So that's, that's sort of how the battery works. And, and the key that what we do is we just make that anode portion, which today is graphite, dramatically smaller when we replace it with our silicon based materials.
0: Definitely. So kind of dovetailing off that, again, it's, I think something like 99% of lithium ion anode market is graphite today you guys are on the cutting edge, it seems like, what has taken so long to get here? Like, what has been the challenges with silicone? Um, maybe you just framed that out for people, because as you mentioned earlier, this seems like a technology that people understood the benefits of, we just couldn't bring it to market.
1: Yeah, some of the original work on silicon's ability to to store lithium, you know, dates back 50 years, right? And so so it's not, the, the periodic table of elements is quite small, and so it's not a revolution to say, oh, hey, silicon might might do really well. The challenge is silicon is so good at storing lithium that a single atom of silicon can store four atoms of lithium, meaning it sort of chemically bonds with four atoms of lithium. And so when you charge the battery, you you get all of this lithium that comes into the material and the silicon expands really dramatically when that happens, because you're, you're literally increasing the number of atoms by four X, right, that you're adding. And so uh, that expansion causes degradation in the battery. Um, it causes really nasty side reactions. It causes mechanical degradation. It causes all kinds of issues, if you can imagine, sort of half your battery expanding 4x. And so despite that expansion, you can still, you're still a much more effective storage medium. But you have to mitigate that expansion. And so we've developed a material that essentially kind of masks that expansion from the rest of the battery. Think of it kind of like a raisin bread where the raisins are silicon and they kind of expand and contract but the sort of loaf dimensions don't change. So that's kind of we make particles that act like that. And so when you put those particles in your battery, you're able to store a lot more lithium but the particles aren't expanding and contracting, you know, and so the battery's not being damaged by this property of the material. Um so that's sort of what's taken that took a long time, but we figured that out some years ago. Now the big challenge is all about scale and to really have an impact on an industry like automotive, you know, the the scale you have to reach is just monumental. And so we've now taken two scale scale-up steps in our labs from lab to pilot, which was a hundred X increase in scale. And then from pilot to our current commercial line, which was another hundred X increase in scale. And we're now working through a factory building project where we're going to take another hundred X increase in scale. And at that point, you know, we will be able to supply less than 1% of the global anode market. And so <laughs> there's just scale is very hard for folks to kind of understand. You know, we we announced earlier this year that our first customer is going to be Mercedes and we're going to be launching in their electric vehicles starting with the G-Wagon uh, with this factory that 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 we're building. But of course that's a premium relatively small volume car and and we have years and years of scale kind of ahead of us and so if you think about it from a market standpoint or a business standpoint, you know, I think at this point, it's really clear that silicon broadly is the answer for the next generation of chemistry. You know, and despite that being true, it's going to take us the better part of this decade before sort of you start to see it take a really, really big market share from graphite.
0: Very fair. It seems like, again, from the outside, looking in a little bit, there would be a significant moat around your proprietary technology. Is that a correct assessment? Do you have direct competitors? How would you frame just the, the competitive environment around the Silicon technology?
1: Yeah, look, we're the originators of this class of material, this class of technology. Um, we've got over 200 patents at this point in our in our portfolio. And that's a really big and important part. The much harder part isn't just inventing it, it's actually scaling it. And so we're really focused on scaling and even there, you know, there's a tremendous amount of manufacturing technology we've had to invent to create this material at scale. So, so you're right. There's basically there's a tremendous amount of proprietary assets, uh, whether it's the patent portfolio, the trade secrets, the manufacturability, the recipes for how to implement this material into into the battery. Um, but none of that matters if you can't scale it to a level where the the market is ready uh, to take it. To your question of Competition in the space, I think a space is oftentimes validated by the presence of competition. And so there's two companies that are publicly traded that work on Silicon Technologies now, Inovix and, and Amprius. and, you know, they take very different approaches. So I don't see a whole lot of overlap with the approaches. We're private, and, and I think today we're the only Silicon, next generation Silicon player that has announced an automotive supply agreement. So not not a development partnership, but a supply agreement where, you know, I can tell you look, the G-Wagon's going to use our technology and it's going to roll off the factory that we're building right now. So I think we're the clear leader in the space, but certainly there's other approaches to it.
0: Maybe it would be helpful just to, again, maybe just high level of it. You're not going to get into specifics, but help the folks kind of understand your targeted customers. Uh, generally, what's the pitch? Like, what is, what is the Zila value proposition?
1: Good question. You know, we tell our customers today with the, with the version of our product that we have available commercially today, is we can help them get 20% higher energy density over state-of-the-art technology. So whatever the best battery in the world they could buy without SeLA, we can help them get a 20% higher capacity battery with SeLA. And, and so we don't compare ourselves against yesterday's technologies. We compare ourselves against the best. And what that means really practically is we work with car makers like Mercedes to figure out which models of theirs would benefit the most from this uplift. And in the case of the the G wagon, it's a fairly large size SUV. It's a beautiful car, but it's not very aerodynamic. So they having higher energy density is really valuable for being able to deliver the kind of range that demanding customers want. And then, because our technology is developed in a way that's we're, it's just the anode material, so we don't build the whole battery, right? You know we can work with any of the cell suppliers that supply the automotive industry in the case of you know a car maker. And so someone like Mercedes uh, will select the cell supplier that they want for a vehicle platform, and then we will deliver this anode material to that cell supplier and then help them integrate and make sure everything goes uh, smoothly there. And so that's kind of the value proposition today. You know, we have future versions of the product that also help achieve much faster recharge time so we can get down in the 15 minute recharge time, even 10 minute in our research labs these days. So we're we're very optimistic for those kind of improvements uh that we can help customers deliver. And then that 20% number that I mentioned over state of the art, you know, we're pushing that to 25, 30, 35, 40. So we we see a lot of runway on this technology and the roadmap throughout the rest of this decade. Um, so ultimately, you know, a car maker would get vehicles with higher range, faster recharge time. And then the last piece is we can also Help with supply chain. So you know we're building what will be at full scale. It'll take a few years, but at full scale, the biggest anode production facility in the U.S. in our uh, Moses Lake facility. So we have a phase one that's going to be the biggest silicon facility in the U.S., and then we're going to build to phase two, which will which will be uh, you know the largest anode facility in the U.S. And so getting supply chain. Security is kind of a, a third thing that, that we benefit our automakers
0: with as well. And for those listening, you did put together a really great white paper that's available on your website that has a lot of good details to run through. And And I was paging through that. And I think one of the, the interesting things is that a customer of yours doesn't necessarily need to switch right away, right, to you know, 100% silicon, right? There's an ability for you guys to support a transition. Um, maybe just talk through that. Yeah, one of the again
1: another benefit of, of our technology is that we can do a, a partial replacement of the graphite. You get partial benefit. So if you replace, you know, fifty percent of the graphite, you'll get fifty percent of the benefit. But in many cases, you know, if you if you're designing a vehicle today and you know that the customers really want three hundred miles, but your your engineers are saying, listen, two eighty five is all we're going to be able to give you, right? well you don't have to make that compromise you don't have to say look we're going to put out an uncompetitive car and hope for the best uh instead you can sort of say look we need what is it um five percent increase in range here let's put in you know uh some some of Sela's anode uh material and have every cell store five percent more energy you don't change the vehicle design you don't change the platform but you close that gap and now all of a sudden you have a, a market competitive vehicle so so that's something that, that we can kind of enable, uh, and it's the exact same material. It's, it's just, you know, you mix it with some amount of graphite at the cell factory. Obviously, you buy less of it. The cost can be a little lower as well. But more importantly, it sort of helps the car maker deliver the right vehicle for the right market segment at the right time. And that's something that where if you're making like a wholesale switch to a brand new technology, and that's your only choice, that's not nearly as appealing.
0: Without getting into specifics, if you want to get into specifics, go for it. But order of magnet-wise, if we think about, the, you know, the graphite, the thinner graphite anode today versus the Scylla silicone-based anode cost differential, like, is it significant? And if so, what's driving that? If not, maybe just parse that out for folks. Yeah, so
1: maybe let's let's go further out and then work backwards, right? So one of the huge advantages with a higher energy density battery is that you can actually get the lower costs for an electric vehicle. And the way you do that is if you have a cell that stores 20, 30, 40% more energy than the cell before, then you can use 20, 30, 40% fewer cells to make a pack of the same capacity. And so without sort of talking about the the cost of sealers materials, one of the things you can see really quickly is, well, if my pack is 30% smaller, then I have less module overhead, I have less copper, less aluminum the thing weighs less. And so the vehicle is actually more efficient, more miles per per kilowatt hour. uh, And so you can actually shrink the battery capacity a little bit and still get the same vehicle. So you have all of these benefits from a higher energy density cell that drive down your vehicle level costs, drive down your pack level costs, drive down your module level costs. And by the way, the same thing applies at the cell level, right? Instead of using a a gigafactory to produce 10 gigawatt hours of capacity you add Sela's technology all of a sudden it gets upgraded to 12 13 14 gigawatt hours of capacity and so you're amortizing that capex investment you know over more production and that drives down cost so the point of all of that is to say look it's actually cheaper when you get to scale uh with SELA than without CELA. Uh now Sela's material on a per kilo basis does cost more than graphite but that's actually not the relevant metric. What you're trying to do is drive down the cost at a cell level, a pack level, and a vehicle level. And not to mention, silos material also stores five times more energy uh, than graphite on a per kilo level today. And so, you know, even if my, our material is 5x as expensive on a per kilo level, it's still cheaper for the energy stored. And so that's the key metric, and that's how the savviest of customers think about it. And, you know, if they don't think about it, well, they're going to, you know, lose out to the competition.
0: There, there, And maybe this will be an easy one at you, but following that comment, but when you go into a customer where you're sourcing customers, what, what is the biggest couple pushback items that you would get? Um, what, what are the constant arguments that you're having? Is it, is it on that realization on, hey, we need to look at it big picture on the cost side or is it a, a couple other items?
1: Most of the customers we deal with are, are pretty sophisticated and, and can understand that case and have models to model that out. Really, the, the big thing that we have to prove is that we can produce at automotive scale. So, you know, today we're producing at a, at a consumer scale. We produce enough material for, you know, millions of consumer devices, and that's good. Uh, what that's showing is that's showing the reliability of our material in the field. You know, there's, you know, seven figures worth of, uh, of devices in the field with our stuff in it. That's, that's a big deal and, you know, no, no issues. And, and so that we've sort of proven that reliability, but now we need to just prove scale. And to do that, we're building this facility in Moses Lake, Washington, which is, uh, you know, we actually just received a $100 million award from the Department of Energy to support that. That's a kind of order magnitude, a quarter billion dollar project that we're in the process of doing, probably a little bit more now. And once that's online, that'll really take away the, the sort of the final uh, challenge that customers see, which is SEAL is a, uh, a new player. We haven't produced that automotive scale yet, you know, and, and we, we've got to prove ourselves.
0: Is it at the Moses facility and the subsequent ramp? That's going to be the primary yep. facility that will support the automotive piece of your business.
1: That'll be the first. I'll um, be the first. You know, and and we think that that we'll start with a hundred thousand vehicles worth of production capacity or so, and we think that facility has the the ability to expand to two to three million vehicles worth of production capacity. You know, that we have to work through all the detailed plans for that, but that still will be you know. 2%, 3 4 5% of the market. Uh, by the time where you know, it's fully built out, it's, it's going to be a really small part. And for a technology that could make the EV battery not just higher performing, but make the EV cheaper, you can imagine that the demand for that isn't 2% or 3%. The demand for yeah. that is 100% of the market to switch to that. And so when that's the case, the demand for this product is going to be really, really strong. Uh, And in the meantime, at smaller scale, our costs are a little higher. We're starting with premium vehicles as as many, many new technologies oftentimes do.
0: So I guess switching gears here a little bit, what are some, again, from the outside looking in, what are some near to medium term targets or focus areas that me sitting here from the outside can be following SELA and be like, Hey, they're making progress. They're hitting things they want to hit um, over the next decade.
1: Yeah, so so I think probably the biggest one is we we need to con- we're going to continue signing up new customers in the coming years, and I'm sure we'll, we'll depending on the customer, we may or may not announce some of those but that's, that'll be a, a sign of continued progress. Uh, Mercedes has been a great partner and they'll be the first to market with our technology, but we're, we're not exclusive and, and uh, you know, ultimately we want to supply the whole industry with this technology. And then the other piece is just going to be progress on this factory that we talked about. So we've, you know, we've purchased the, the facility, it's, we, we have 160 acres with a half a million plus square foot facility there. With the power and all the needs that it has, we're designing that facility now. You know, we're designing out what that's, that build-out is going to be like. And sometime next year, we'll break ground and start actual construction uh, within those buildings, start landing the equipment. And then we may or may not have some additional consumer electronics launches in the, in the meantime. That market is a good one, but we're really laser-focused on on getting the scale we need for the automotive industry. And so th- those will be some other milestones.
0: I get where we're at today, you kind of have to, you know, walk a little bit before we can run. If I'm asking you kind of where you want to be at, do you, do you envision at some point in the future, Sila, hey, like, we're building capacity, uh, we don't necessarily need contracts in place, kind of build a capacity and the capacity and the customers will come? Or you kind of will take a more moderate uh, measured approach where, hey, uh, we have this customer contract in place. Now let's go build out the capacity for it.
1: I think it's going to be the latter. These are, you know, billion-dollar facilities at scale. So, you know, we're really building kind of a first phase, which is not a full-scale site. That we we have the capital for, and we have the customer for. Um, so that's already handled. But if you're talking about building a one or two billion-dollar plant, you know, uh, and the the thing to to add to that is that in the automotive world, the roadmaps and the planning for vehicles and platforms is further out. Than, than production capacity builds take. And so we're gonna win platforms and we're gonna know we need to go build and deliver certain capacity, at least at least in the traditional automotive world. Some of the newcomers act much faster on changes, mm-hmm. um, but the sort of traditional automakers have quite a long cycle and, and buy well, well ahead. So that's what we're we'll looking for.
0: Again, taking long-term view here, would you envision Tesla ever competing in any other component outside the anode in the battery? Or is that not something you're thinking about at this juncture?
1: We don't spend too much time on that. We certainly don't don't talk about some of our approaches there. We have had some, some DOE awards for other components. Look, you know, I think you mentioned the white paper that we authored. Someone has to go deliver on all those innovations. We need better cathodes. We need better separators. We need better electrolytes. We need better cell assembly techniques. We need all of that. So I think, you know, as a, as a startup, we're laser focused on job one. Job one is anode. When we deliver on that, we're going to want to do more to push this forward. Our mission is to power the world's transition to clean energy. And if no one else has figured out the innovations required to do that, then yeah, we're going to go pick those up.
0: Makes sense to me. And this is really, it's, it's truly been amazing to the amount of innovation um, that has happened in the States just in the last five to 10 years. It's really likely we continue to see this rapid innovation over the next decade if if we're trying to hit the targets and really transition away from fossil fuels to renewables, I think, in general. So in that context, and again, just maybe putting a bow a little bit on the conversation today, but what are the overarching macro drivers in this transition to your view? And specifically, does does government policy play an important role in your mind? Um, There's been obviously a lot of news, a lot of headlines, a lot of chatter on the new IRA bill that got passed here in the U.S. So yeah, just, just wanted to get your take there. Look, it
1: plays a huge role, and, and it has the ability to play a huge role. Uh, government, uh, governments have an ability to play a huge role in this transition. I would say it can't be singular. The transition has to be driven, first and foremost, by technologies that make better products that customers love. And I think this is what we proved at Tesla, right? We proved that we can make an electric car that is just better for the money than the gas equivalent. And even after the tax credits expired, Tesla hit record production quarters, including in the US. And so what that says is that EVs are just better. They're cars consumers want to buy. And I think when you have that, when you have a technology like that, when you have sort of this battery innovation that's gonna make it even better, then the role that the government policy can play is to strengthen that, to accelerate that, to make it go, you know, go way faster towards these goals, these societal goals that we all want, which is to have a, you know, a clean, bright future with, you know, an independent uh, supply of our energy, right? So, So this transition to EVs is also about energy independence. So, you know, we're fortunate in the U.S. now to have our own supply of fossil fuels. So we're not dependent on supply from others. But our prices are still set by global markets. Our prices are set by what you know, what happens in, you know, in other countries, what happens overseas, what happens in, in oil markets overseas. When, the, when you make the transition to renewables and storage, your production can be domestic and your price setting can be domestic. And so you really decouple your energy infrastructure from sort of the volatility of global markets and that provides energy independence. That's what energy independence in the 21st century looks like, right? So I think there is an objective there for the government to get there. There's an objective to get to cleaner air and, and you know, and lower emissions, but it has to be underpinned by technology that's just fundamentally better. And so the catalyst to your question on this transition is technology that's fundamentally better. If you try to regulate worse technology into the market, like The market will keep looking for ways to get around that uh whereas if it's just better eventually everybody gets on board and everything gets aligned and that's where we are today
0: i like this question and and you can feel free to punt it but is there anything that keeps you up at night as you scale your own business and and kind of what i mean by that is there any potential developments you'd see in the space you know that would hurt sila's value proposition or that's not something that's particularly relevant at this juncture for you guys
1: yeah, I, th- I think what you're getting at is, are there kind of things out in the world that could change that would sort of make our business less viable or more viable? And, you know, the short answer to that is like, no, that that does not keep me up at night at all. What keeps me up at night is our own ability to go and execute on this opportunity that's ahead of us, right? What we, we know full well, EVs are better, as I said. We know full well that our technology is better than the incumbent technology will be more cost effective, will be all of those things. But we've got to get to scale. And it's not a secret that we haven't built that automotive scale before. And so we need to recruit the best and the brightest that want to go work, that want to go push themselves uh, on the development of this technology, on the scaling of this technology. And so that's sort of the things that that keep me up at night. are, Are we doing that fast enough? Are we doing it well enough to actually have an impact on the world? Because it's not just inventing something you know, it doesn't deliver an impact on the world. You have to invent, and then you have to bring it to scale.
0: I'll ask you about this too, um, because this, this gets a lot of news attention. It's always brought up, kind of, when you go to kind of investor conferences or industry conferences. But what is your view on solid state batteries, and what, in your mind, is it? I think that a lot of people maybe have preconceived notions or don't exactly get what it is or what it's trying to achieve. And what's your view of the potential on that? First of all, it's
1: kind of a misnomer. Uh, the name tries to imply that things don't move around uh, in a solid state battery. But the truth is the lithium moves back and forth and does all kind of mechanical damage and has to be dealt with. And a lot of them also use liquid electrolytes in them as well. But fundamentally, I think what I was saying earlier is I think we've we've now shown and the world has seen that silicon is, is here and solid state is not. It's prime time. It's game time. You know, the IRA has been passed. The decisions of what to what technologies to scale and what's ready are happening right now in boardrooms across these automakers. And they're uniformly betting on silicon and they're not doubling down on, on solid state right now. So I think there's just a difference between the readiness of those two classes of technologies broadly and you know without sort of getting into any specifics. And so the key question is, okay, this transition to silicon is gonna happen. You know, what does solid state bring above and beyond that? And, you know, that's not entirely clear. It hasn't proven what it can bring above and beyond that, right? And, you know, to your question of what is it, well, it's really changing. When people say solid state, it's really changing that liquid electrolyte component to a solid electrolyte and trying to have that impact things like energy density and fast charge. And it's not clear that the performance levels it can reach are really any better than the performance levels that silicon technology can reach uh, without the kind of massive change required to all the battery manufacturing processes. So we'll see. Look, I think, I I think, you know, you asked me kind of if there are outside things that that keep me up at night, solid state doesn't, I hope it's successful. The market is so big. It's so, so, so big that if Silicon and solid state all hit their metrics and all scale, like it's going to be a long time before we displace graphite a long time. And so I think that's really the thing we, we should all be focused on is like, Silicon and solid state companies are both trying to compete against the graphite incumbent.
0: Awesome. So I like to, uh, to end these podcast with, uh, with a few, um, just general questions. Well, maybe some personal questions, but if you'll indulge me just four, so number one, which team will win the 2022 world cup?
1: Oh man. And the U S is out already. I'm going to go Brazil.
0: Brazil. That's a good choice. What is the best business or, or nonfiction book you have read this year?
1: I haven't read it this year, but I'm just gonna go back to an old favorite, which is just good to great.
0: What's that one about?
1: Uh, just J- Jim Collins and sort of looking at what separates good companies from great companies. I think it's just one of the all-time best books, and there's a lot of insight about leadership and and what it takes to win for sustained periods of time. In that.
0: And lastly, what is one of the best pieces of advice or guidance you have ever received?
1: Look, I, I think. One of the things that's very been very empowering is having mentors that see it as as uh, a duty to tell me what they think, without making me feel like I have to listen. That I have to do what they say, and and so the advice was, you know, basically just win from one of my mentors who said, "I'll always tell you what I think, and if that goes against winning, don't listen to me." And so I think that's at the end of the day, that's you have to remember is uh, when you're building building a startup and a company, you're going to get a ton of advice or any in any role. And your job is to listen to it, but not always follow it. And at the end of the day, your, your job is to win.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So that's a perfect way to wrap this up. Thanks again so much, Gene, for your time. It's been a real pleasure. It's been an amazingly informative educational discussion. Uh, wishing you and Sila all the best here in, in the coming years. And hopefully we can have you back for an update at some point would love to have you back if possible
1: sounds good thank you sean appreciate you having me on
0: appreciate it